Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered, the Shadi Nabhan podcast. I'm your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Today is an episode I was hoping not to tape. I'm not going to lie. I did not want to tape another episode on COVID-19, but I guess we have to. Guess what? It seems that there's a lot of these variants circulating. The cases are going up. Hospitalization is going up. And I really wanted to understand what's going on in terms of the variants and help listeners have a roadmap into the do's and the don'ts. And for this, I needed to have a very trusted voice in Dr. Priya Sampath Kumar at the Mayo Clinic. Priya has been a previous guest on this show. And in fact, one of her prior episodes that we taped on PPEs on my older uh, podcast uh, had over 5,000 downloads. But really, I have brought Priya to today's show to talk about these variants to talk about do we mask, not mask, kids in school, testing, not testing, what are we doing wrong, what are we doing right? We, we're in problem, we, we, we are in trouble. And I, for the record, I don't think we can always do a randomized control trial in every single question known to man. I just don't believe in that. I believe sometimes we need randomized control trials to answer questions, and sometimes we can't. And we need to make decisions that help patients and help people despite the lack of randomized control trial. And I'm going to ask uh, Priya about this. I would like to really better understand really what we need to do. Um, so it's the episode I never wanted to take. It's the episode I really never wanted to to talk about because after a year and a half of dealing with the SARS-CoV-2 and with the COVID-19, I was hoping this is behind us and we are back to normal. Reality is we are not back to normal and that's where we are. So um, please um, let me know what you think about this episode and send me your comments, send me your ideas. Uh, you know how to reach me. And also, don't forget to watch these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Naban and Healthcare Unfiltered. Without further ado, Dr. Priya Sampath Kumar on the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast. Well, it's really... Uh, my pleasure to host a dear colleague and a friend uh, and, and a prior guest on the Healthcare Unfiltered show, uh, Dr. Priya Sampath Kumar. I was telling actually Priya before we got on the show that I was hoping not to call her and ask her to come on the show. And we would be, and if we do, we'll just talk about something fun, like an episode we did on music with, uh, with Vincent and others. But um, what can we do, Priya, right? I mean, here we are again. Um, over a year later, and uh, I've been corresponding with you, asking you to come on the show because we have so much to cover. And our goal of this is to really provide some clarity into a lot of things that are just happening uh, when it comes to COVID and some misinformation and all these things. We don't want to clarify everything to listeners. But before we get started, although I, I know a lot of people know you and have listened to you and I've got amazing feedback on every time you came on the show, 
just to level set as to where you work, uh, what you do. And, and I know you're doing so many things right now with COVID, including some international efforts. Maybe you could tell us about that as well. So um, I'm an infectious disease physician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, and I'm also the head of infection control. And that's really um, a lot of what I do help uh, prevent infections in the hospital. And so when COVID started, all of our work was focused on infection prevention and cases began rising and I've been involved in patient care of patients with uh, COVID. Um, and like you said, uh, we've been dealing with this now for 18 months. We were hoping that we wouldn't have to be talking about it still in August of 2021. And, um, you know, it almost feels like deja vu that we are, we had a lot of fears about COVID last March uh, hitting us in the U.S. And uh, we got through that. We had our uh, surges in the fall of last year. And then uh, this year when vaccines came out, we were all so very optimistic that bad surges, especially uh, hospitalized cases were behind us. But here we are again and things across the country are not looking good. And Priya, I mean, I think uh, I'll be the first to admit that I never thought, honestly, we would have vaccines that fast, frankly. So when we got the vaccines, um, obviously, we were very lucky. But I also never thought that everybody's going to get vaccinated. I think when we look historically at the US, there's always a fraction of the population, could be 20%, 25%, that just simply, for whatever reason, don't believe in vaccines. So um, were you expecting things would be different? I mean, I kind of knew that some people will not get vaccinated. So I wasn't up. I was optimistic that we would have a vaccine, but the vaccine really exceeded our uh, expectations, right? We didn't think we would have a vaccine that would be 95% effective like the mRNA vaccines have been uh, shown to be. So that was a surprise. And with these really effective vaccines, I did not think that vaccine acceptance would be as low as it is, or it would be so focal, you know, different parts of the country, really. It, some parts of the country are at 80, 90% vaccinated, other parts are very, very low. So we have, it is very disappointing that we have amazingly effective vaccines, but that vaccine, we don't have a supply problem. So when the vaccines first came out in December, there was a lot of um, hysteria around when are we going to get ours and, you know, all the, you know, people... Uh, really anxious to get vaccinated. And then vaccine supply increased and it almost became, people became apathetic about it, which, you know, I can understand people having strong feelings and some small proportion of the population will not want to be vaccinated for various reasons, but there's almost apathy about it, which is surprising. You know, there are those who are strongly opposed, those are strongly in favor, but a lot of people who just are like, uh, I don't need it. I mean, there are some people, and I don't like. I I, I always try to figure out if there's why that was, and and, and I, I mean, some folks would say maybe it was public health messaging. I, I think we maybe I'm being a little bit critical. I I thought we could have done a little bit better. I guess maybe not. I don't know. But some people say it was public health messaging. Some people say well. You know, if I'm going to do the vaccine and still wear masks, that's why I'm doing it. Like you, you heard so many things. If you look back, are you able to to have a I don't know top reasons you think we we were unable to get more people vaccinated? 
I think it goes back to the whole uh, downplaying of COVID, right? Initially, when COVID first hit the US, there was a big push to say it's not that bad, you know, it's the corona flu, if you remember, that was a term that was thrown around. So a large proportion of the people were, um, were really fed the message that COVID itself is a media ploy to get you worried that it isn't really that bad. And there are still people holding on to that. And so when you think something is not so bad and you have something that's brand new um, to treat treat that or prevent that, people are saying, well, why should I take something untested or new for something that isn't going to really hurt me? And the issue is that COVID is not like the flu, it's much more severe. And for some people it might not hurt them, but it does hurt large sections of the population and you should get vaccinated, not just for yourself, but also for your community to protect other people around you who, will not have the same response to vaccines as young, healthy people will. You know, I think some some of the um, issues were, um, you know, how much of the, we're going to get to the variants. I just want to cover a few things. Like, you know, th there were a lot of things that came about uh, myocarditis. I think you, I mean, I actually don't even talk about it, but I feel like we have to because it's an important topic. I, I stopped discussing it on social media and public because there's absolutely two polarizing schools of thoughts. I mean, <laughs> the one that would say vaccine-related myocarditis, the one would say COVID myocarditis. And, you know, it's like a boxing match. Forget the boxing match. What's the real data and what are your thoughts about the myocarditis? Because it does exist. The CDC have it on the website. So it's not like, you know... I I remember you calling me a few weeks yeah. ago with uh, uh, with questions about uh, a friend of yours whose yeah. child had uh, probably had myocarditis. Yeah. And, you know, it's definitely there. I actually saw a patient in clinic yesterday who probably had myocarditis a month ago and is doing well now, but is concerned about long-term effects, et cetera. And it, it is real. It is it happens very infrequently, and from everything that we know, it's completely reversible. There's been no mortality associated with it. It's very, very scary uh, when it happens, and uh, but it is reversible, and it improves over time. We don't think there are any long-term sequelae. So again, we need to be honest about these side effects that can happen. Um, so anaphylaxis can happen with the mRNA vaccines. The myocarditis seems to be one of the more significant side effects. But again, keeping it in perspective, when cases are rising and there's a real risk of getting COVID and COVID in the same population can cause the same sort of problems at a much, much higher frequency, I think you um, you need to weigh the risks and the benefits for yourself as an individual. And to me, the risks are um, way outweighed by the benefits. The benefits are so much stronger that I would still advocate for vaccination. Um, how, about in, how about in children? Because there were a little bit more that the kids between 12 to 16 years old. And I, I say that selfishly because my twins are at the age of 14 and and I, I kept weighing risk versus benefit. It seems like there's a segment, which is the it's, kids are- it's the, Actually the older adolescents. So, you know, 16 and older seem to be the ones at highest risk. It extends up into the mid twenties. 
that population seems at the highest risk. But even there, the, the benefits from the vaccine are much, much higher, provided COVID is circulating. So suppose, you know, there's no COVID at all, your county is 95% vaccinated, then you're being very careful and you don't want to take that risk, it might be reasonable. Uh, but I, I do think in the country as a whole, uh, that even in that age group, the benefits of vaccination outweigh the risks. Are there data on uh, younger than 12 years old? Uh, and It's being gathered. So the vaccine is still being studied and it appears from prelim data or just reports that it, the vaccine seems to be uh, very safe uh, in that age group also. But we don't have any published data, peer-reviewed data out yet. So in the adolescents, um, there are theories is, yes, it is true that, you know, the, 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 maybe the benefit outweighs the risk. Some of this is individual decision. I mean, I kind of think, you know, risk versus benefit is very difficult to standardize across all people. Uh, but some folks are saying, you know, maybe because the myocarditis happens in the mRNA vaccines, Maybe in this age group, give the J&J, for example, or give one shot of the mRNA, you don't need two shots. Uh, any thoughts on, on that? So again, it depends on the gender. So the myocarditis seems to primarily be in young adolescent males. So uh, in young women, the risk from the um, viral vector vaccine, so the J&J uh, vaccine, or in, or in Europe, the AstraZeneca vaccine, young women have a higher risk of the blood clots. So I would stay away from that for them. But in young men, maybe the J&J vaccine is a good alternative. Um, for young women, I would say that definitely uh, the mRNA vaccine is the better alternative. How about a one shot? Is one shot enough for some of these, uh, for the kids? For with the mRNA vaccines? Yeah. Uh, no. So previously, with the trial data, the at least the antibody levels were very high, and also the clinical efficacy seemed high with just one dose of the mRNA vaccines. With the Delta variant, the efficacy with one dose has gone down considerably. So if you really, you know, and that is pretty much the um, uh, variant in the US currently. So for the Delta variant, you definitely need two doses. So let's talk about these variants just a little bit because that is, um, because I wanna talk about the, um, uh, I have a lot of friends who are fully vaccinated who still got sick, uh, PCR positive. I'm sure you have uh, people as well. And you know, the vaccine is not 100% effective against getting the COVID, right? But it's hopefully effective against dying from COVID. That's what... <laughs> yes. Yeah. So so the Delta, the Delta variants or other variants, did these emerge because people simply were not getting vaccinated or were they just destined to happen anyway, like the flu shot, the flu virus? And like, was this a natural thing that was going to happen? Or did we really truly had a chance of never having a variant? No, I don't think we, so I think that a variant was, these variants were inevitable. Uh, could we have prevented them from spreading so rapidly? Maybe. And the, the variants began emerging long before vaccination. So it wasn't that vaccines were available and people were not getting vaccinated. So the alpha variant, um, you know, was around by um, probably uh, late summer of last year. 
the Delta variant was definitely circulating uh, as far back as October of last year. So well before any vaccines were available. So every the mRNA vaccine, mRNA viruses in general do tend to mutate. So just like influenza, every time the virus replicates, it makes tiny errors. Um, and these errors, when enough of them accumulate, you get uh, a variant. And many of these variants just die down on their own because they don't have any survival advantage. But anything that enhances the transmissibility uh, of the virus allows that particular variant to, to outgrow all the other types. So that's what happens. So to prevent variants from happening, what we need to do is prevent cases altogether. And that can be by vaccination or by all the other public health measures we know work. So distancing uh, and um, very importantly, masking. So what had happened likely was that, you know, when hospitalizations from COVID went down, people uh, started becoming complacent, saying, oh, COVID has gone away. Now we don't need to worry about it. And, and in places like India in particular, where, you know, the population lives very, very close together, there was transmission, there was replication, many, many cases were going undetected and all of the mutations in these people who were getting infected uh, added up until we had this brand new variant that now we know that the Delta variant is, is about 200 times, 200% more transmissible or two times more transmissible than the original um, virus. So it started spreading more rapidly. A lot more people got infected and then we started seeing the big rise in hospitalizations and that's when we went back to testing and discovered all these people. So, you know, the, the fact that COVID can have mild infections, asymptomatic infections, is what allows these mutants to form. Because if, if something like Ebola, where, you know, you get very sick with it, you're not going to go undetected. You will find it, and therefore the virus doesn't have a chance to mutate as much, also because it is highly lethal. So the, the Delta variant is more contagious. Is it also more lethal? So the data is mixed on that. During the surges, definitely, um, you know, mortality uh, went up a little bit. And that always happens when the healthcare system is overwhelmed. So it's still not clear that Delta is actually more lethal. Uh, it... Um, uh, a higher mortality with the Delta surges could have been because of um, the healthcare systems being overwhelmed and patients not getting um, the right kind of care. In, in the UK, when they had their recent surges, it does not appear that mortality actually increased. The data is mixed and we're not sure for sure that it actually increases um, uh, either hospitalization or death. But like when it comes to the variants, uh, Priya, the um, like I, I'm thinking, I mean, we did not close travel. We closed travel a little bit, but essentially you could travel anywhere, even from India, from Asia, from wherever it is. How much of travel you think um, affected the emergence of uh, these variants? 
So it plays a role in transmission. Again, variants arise in some parts of the world and maybe variants arise in multiple parts of the world at the same time. And then travel definitely magnifies the effect. So by the time Delta was recognized as a new variant, uh, at that moment, it was already in about 25 countries. And right now it's in about 136 countries. So travel plays a huge role in dissemination of these uh, variants around the country. And that brings me to another point. You know, the US is very fortunate to, to have access to vaccines and a large proportion of the population is vaccinated. And now we're talking about, you know, boosters and giving more doses of vaccines. And all of that can help certain pockets of the population but to really control variants, you know, we can vaccinate and get five doses, six doses to the US population, but we're not gonna be safe unless we're ready to just lock down our country and say we're not gonna allow any travel at all because for the US to be safe, the whole world needs to control um, uh, COVID. So just vaccinating the US alone without contributing to uh, the world's vaccine supply does not help the U.S. But I mean, as, as long as, I guess, as long as it's not causing death and increased hospitalization, and it's just like, a, let's say it's a common cold and it becomes like the flu or just having a bad cold, we don't, I mean, we care, but we don't really care that much because we're going to have always cold and, and, and so on. We just care about we're trying to figure out how do we mitigate right death and hospitalization, but I mean we're never going to go down to zero. COVID. We're means- never going to go down to zero, but if we have these kind of uncontrolled large outbreaks, you're going the virus is going to to again mutate, and you're going to have another variant, and that variant could now be very lethal. So uh, that's what we're doing right now. We're saying Delta is bad. Maybe two doses aren't enough. We should give one more dose. But okay, that'll protect you against Delta, but until we control it everywhere, tamp it down to manageable levels around the world, if there is, you know, hot spots flaring up where, where virus keeps uh, replicating, the more people who are infected at any given time, the more likely it is that these mutations will arise and you'll have a new variant. And you mentioned that the Delta variant started before we rolled out the vaccine and so forth. It was in 25 countries. So do current vaccines, I mean, let's say the people who are not vaccinated, I think I was looking at the stats in preparation for the show and I saw that maybe about about 55% are fully vaccinated in the US, something like that. And maybe 65% are one dose and so on. If, if vaccine is vaccinating more going to prevent the Delta variant? I think vaccinating more is going to prevent deaths and hospitalization from the Delta variant, and it needs to happen in the U.S. But vaccinating with the third and fourth dose will not help if Delta or other variants are circulating elsewhere because that's going to give rise to the next variant, which, you know, right now the mRNA vaccines protect against all the known variants, but there may be a variant that the vaccines don't protect against, and then we're back to square one. So that's why I'm saying we need to try to get the entire world um, vaccinated and protected 
to reduce the risk that more and more of these variants will arise. But how are we going to, I mean, how do we do that? How can we vaccinate the entire world? We need, you know, the countries that have the resources need to uh, increase vaccine production capacity. We need to share vaccine every day in the U.S. We're wasting vaccine that is expiring or not wasting, but throwing it away because it's expiring. We need to have a way to move that vaccine to areas that desperately need vaccine. We need to remove any barriers to production um, that exist around the world. I mean, you, you've been very active with India and, and working with the, with the Indian authorities and healthcare systems and so forth. How are things there from when it comes to these variants and so on? So the Delta variant has a firm foothold in India. Um, one of the problems in India was that we weren't doing enough sequencing, which is why it took a while for us to recognize the Delta variant. Sequencing capacity has been increased. There are more, uh, more the testing capacity overall has been increased. And right now cases are much lower than in the US and things are at a manageable level. But as things get better, people, you know, despite the horrific situation that existed in India in May and June, people's memories fade and things are going back to where they were before. Large crowds at, you know, cricket matches, large crowds at weddings. And so I, I just fear that it's a lull and that things will get bad again, because again, India has given more vaccines than the U.S. in a shorter space of time. They crossed 500 million doses. Their vaccination campaign began in February, and by July, they had crossed 500 million doses of vaccine administered. But because of the sheer size of the country, that still only is about 12% of the population being vaccinated. So... Um, amazing number, 500 million in, in six months. I mean, still... So, so let, let's just talk a little bit about this third and fourth booster and so forth, because... So part of me is wondering, um, like I kind of feel sometimes we're flying by the seat of our pants. I'll, uh, this is a true conversation. So my wife had the vaccine and she actually had COVID earlier in the year. And I did not. I just had the vaccine. And... Um, she checked her antibodies and, uh, and her sister as well checked her antibodies. So my wife still has some antibodies. They're on the way down and her sister has no antibodies left. And they both had vaccine and they both had COVID. So I'm the doctor in the family. I'm being asked, what do we do? Do we get booster shot? Like her sister has no antibodies. My wife has some antibody decline. I'm like, I don't know. I, I like, we have no real data. Yeah. So part, part of me is wondering, do we need to study this before we recommend it or do we just recommend it? And, and I'm, believe me, I'm not a believer that everything needs a randomized controlled trial, but I also have no idea how to respond, respond intelligently. What are your thoughts there? How do, we, how do we counsel, I guess, the public? I gave you a true story of my family, but I'm sure there are many others listening that will have similar stories. So a very difficult question to answer and a question that I get asked multiple times per day. So I think as, you know, working in cancer and having a good understanding of immunology, you know that antibody responses are not the only thing that's important. Um, and with a lot of other um, diseases also, antibody levels go down. So the case, one case in point is hepatitis B vaccination. So as healthcare workers, 
you know, we all get, now everyone gets vaccinated as a child, they get vaccinated, you know, even before you leave the hospital as newborns. And the uh, antibody levels do decline over time, but we don't think that that matters. So for hepatitis B, if you get vaccinated as an adult, we recommend you get uh, titers done for hepatitis B antibodies at about uh, four to six weeks after the end of the vaccination series. If you're positive, we don't recommend retesting it at any point in time, even if you're a healthcare worker. Uh, you know, high risk of exposure to hepatitis B through blood and body fluids because your antibody levels decline, but your memory cells persist. And when you are exposed to hepatitis B again, you um, remount a very vigorous response and there have been no cases of transmission of hepatitis B in vaccinated individuals. So by that analogy, I think that most healthy adults who have received uh, COVID vaccines should have good protection. And we now have studies with both Pfizer and Moderna showing good protection for at least six months. Uh, and as more and more people get vaccinated, we'll find out how long that protection lasts. So if you're immunocompetent, I don't think you need to get vaccinated again. Now, between disease and vaccination, we were telling people that uh, antibody levels are much higher on a, you know, several fold higher after uh, vaccination than after natural disease. So we were telling people, even if you've had disease, go ahead and get vaccinated because that will give you longer lasting protection. I've been watching breakthrough cases very carefully, at least in my patient population, you know, in my healthcare system. And we are seeing breakthrough vaccination rates um, at about 0.5%, very low. Um, and these patients are generally asymptomatic. They test positive. Many of them are picked up because we do screening before elective procedures and they are positive by PCR. They have very mild symptoms or no symptoms at all. So very, very few hospitalizations, deaths, but asymptomatic infections are happening. And But when you look at the um, people who had COVID infection, the reinfection rate is very, very low. So natural infection also seems to give you good uh, protective uh, antibody levels and good clinical protection. So I think that the combination of being having had confirmed COVID and um, uh, vaccine, I don't think they need revaccination at all, um, provided they're healthy and not high-risk. But do you think, I mean, I know the FDA now has recommended, or the CDC has recommended that you do a booster for immunocompromised patients. Do you think this is a resolved debate? Do you think this should be like studied more rigorously? Because it does have impact longer term, right? Because- I. I agree. So there's been a lot of pressure because immunosuppressed patients are very worried. And you know that the recommendation for um, the boosters was made on fairly small trials. So there was a Canadian study that looked at 300 patients who were randomized to either get two-dose series and a placebo or a three-dose series. And the antibody levels were much higher in those who got the three-dose series. Again, 300 patients. Uh, these were all solid organ transplant patients. So they said, if you are immunosuppressed, uh, you can go ahead and get a third dose. Um, I think that's reasonable 
for those who are truly severely immunosuppressed. I think their risk of COVID is high. We know that the uh, side effects in these people with the third dose was not, um, there were no, no unusual side effects. So it's reasonable um, if you want to do it. What I worry about is, I don't know, in my practice, everybody says I've had three urinary tract infections. My immune system doesn't work well. I'm immunosuppressed. So, you know, by that extension, a lot of people are going to want to get three three doses or even more doses. And I feel like that's probably not the right thing, again, from the global perspective, when many people have no access to vaccines. I mean, my, my, my parents, who are older, as you know, they were asking me, and they were vaccinated in February. February, the first dose was February 14th, and so on. So they're like about uh, six months, seven months. And uh, uh, every day, my dad is like, you know, I, I think I need a third shot. And I, I, maybe he does. I really don't know, to be honest. Um, you know, he's, you know, like, do I check his antibody? Like, I, so I, the, problem, the problem with the antibody tests is that they are not really reliable. Not, Every yeah. test is designed differently. So I don't know that we have good data one way or the other. Should we so, give boosters to older people? Just like, you know, uh, so Israel is doing that. I think we have to wait to see what, what happens. I, I really think that with the kinds of antibody levels you get after the mRNA vaccines, that it's unlikely that a booster is particularly helpful in immunocompetent individuals. I mean, there, there has been some vocal critics out there that have said, you know what, we, you know, with so many people that have had the vaccines and so on, this would not be a very difficult randomized control trial, pretty much. You could certainly, you know, randomize folks to, um, you know, getting a booster, others not getting a booster and have a endpoint of hospitalizations and so on. It's, and, I, and I think it's, a, it's an, I believe it's an ethical way to do it because we really don't have an answer. Um, so there has been some critics um, about that, and I can understand that point. At the same time, I really don't know what the right answer. Why haven't we done really an RCT for that, for the booster question, for that question? I don't know that I can answer that. Um, part of the issue also is that where do you do it? Um, so rates of COVID have been so different, right? When you have uh, is some of the trial data that showed very, very high efficacy was, was during times where the variants were not circulating, during a time where cases were going down. So that's been one of the criticisms. So any randomized control trial that is spread out over a long period of time, there are too many other variables that come in. But I think at least looking at the, the data from other countries' experience, so Israel is kind of an RCT in progress because they have had a very highly vaccinated uh, population, and now they are going ahead with vaccinating. I think they go, they're vaccinating everyone over 60 at six months. So we'll have to, in the absence of an RCT, at least we'll have data from that to guide us. But there's so much pressure by different groups. So I know the you know um, there's been a lot of interest in from Pfizer too, saying we you need boosters, you need boosters. Well, Pfizer is going to make a lot of money. Exactly. Huh? <laughs> I got to talk to Vincent about that. About the you know he he'll be very vocal about it. Priya, how about this lambda variant? I I was reading a report uh, this past week, and it was really pretty scary that with the Delta variant, if you get vaccines, at least you're 
you know, you won't get uh, in hospitals or die from it. But I, I read a report uh, that Lambda is, uh, is, the vaccines won't touch it. I mean, and it's pretty bad. I don't know that that's true. So a, a lot of the data on Lambda is coming out from South America, where it was first described in Peru. And, um, you know, they, I don't, and then the other news that's coming out is all neutralization studies and small studies. I don't know that we know enough about it, how it behaves clinically, whether um, mRNA vaccines are effective or not. So the um, Sinovac and the Sinopharm vaccines that were used in Peru didn't seem to protect as much against Lambda. Uh, they are inactivated vaccines and, you know, they have maybe at the best 60% protection even against the original strain of the virus. So I don't know that we can make a lot of um, assumptions yeah. about how the mRNA vaccines will work against it or whether it will get a foothold in the U.S. Very, very um, limited data at this point. So we're taping this episode on, on August uh, 14. You know, we're going to air it in about 10 days or so, but uh, I, I think this is the school season. It's going to, schools are opening. Uh, the football season is starting very soon and, and all of these things. And, and I, I kind of feel people are over the idea of any, you know, we're not going to lock down at this point. It's, it is what it is. Tell me your opinion about school and schools opening. Um, and as you describe your opinion about this, um, at least in my kids' school, and I've heard a lot of schools, they were doing asymptomatic screening, like they will actually do testing once a week for the kids, regardless of symptoms or not. And um, and I'm a little bit, I'm never sure testing is like, you know, I'm not symptomatic now, you're not symptomatic now, going and getting a test, I'm not sure what to do with it. So let's talk about kids going back to school, how safe it is, what can we do, and whether testing asymptomatic individuals in general really has any value. Um, so school has uh, been such a hot topic issue. People are, again, very divided. They think that schools shouldn't be opening and other parents are. I've had it with distance learning. The impact on my children of distance learning is worse than any COVID impact. I want my kids to go back to school. I we've talked about this before, and you know, before vaccines were available, I was worried not about children being together, but about the impact on teachers, uh, because we know the children can get infected and spread to others, and they can have um, relatively asymptomatic infection. Now that all adults in the U.S. have really had an opportunity to get vaccinated, um, I think the teachers are, are, should be safe if they if they got vaccinated. They can wear masks. We know how to you know protect themselves from COVID. As far as children go, um, based on what we now know about how COVID behaves in children, we still know that COVID doesn't cause severe COVID in the vast, vast majority of children. The, the rates of hospitalization and death are much lower in children than in adults. So I think that opening schools with some precautions in, in place is um, reasonable. And what are those precautions? So one is, again, making sure that your building's ventilation is adequate. 
Um, every school should be checking their air exchanges, making sure that you know you've done everything possible uh, within reason to uh, improve air flows within the school. Anywhere where you know windows can be opened, many parts of the country, like Chicago, for instance, you can't open the windows in a few months. But when it when you can, keeping windows open, having natural ventilation will be a good idea. And then allowing kids to not just allowing encourage. Recommending that kids be masked in school, I think, is important, and that masking can be tied to local rates. It's hard for a masking mandate at the national level or even at the state level, but again, our data systems have become so much more robust. We now know what our case rates are in the county. And depending on where your school is, one school might be fully masked, other schools might not need masking. So I think allowing some flexibility to school administrators and really erring on the side of caution and um, masking whenever possible would be a good idea. So this is a perfect segue about masking because it's another hard debate, right? And I'll, I'll tell you my opinion about that in, in a second, but... Uh, but you know, I think that um, there's a lot of contention into, we don't know if masks work. Um, uh, you know, we've never studied that and, and we can't live forever masked and so on. And, and why can't we do a study to look at this? Before you answer, I'm gonna just say on the air, my opinion is I, I don't know, like I feel masking is such a low cost intervention that uh, I may have no idea how effective it is, but it's probably not going to hurt. It's not like, you know, costly and it doesn't really, it's not an invasive thing. So I feel that it's one of those things where I'm not really sure our resources need to be directed to study masking versus not masking. At the same time, I'm very sympathetic to folks who say, well, I mean, do I wear this for the next five years? I, I, do we really have any data to support this? So, and then, you take it into the kids where you really, I mean, sometimes you can't really, a two-year-old in the yard playing, it's very difficult to mask and so on. So let's talk about masking a little bit, where things are, why is it such a polarizing question that really people get so angry at each other when you talk about masks? Again, I think it was politicized when it didn't need to be. And that's still, you know, politics is still dividing us. Um, as far as are masks effective, I think they are enormously effective. Yes, we don't have a randomized control trial. And based on the empirical evidence we have, I don't know that a, a randomized control trial is really ethical. I have seen it in healthcare, that when we wear masks, we have um, reduced transmission of COVID between healthcare workers, we have reduced COVID transmission from patients to healthcare workers, and from healthcare workers to patients. So they definitely work. Uh, is it easy to keep on? Again, we've learned a lot about mask design, and we've learned that uh, three-layered cloth masks, which are more comfortable than most of the medical masks, work as well in terms of filtration as some of the medical masks. So using a well-fitted, comfortable mask, you can, you can wear it for several hours of the day without problems. Will we be wearing it for five years is a difficult question, but if we don't wear it now, 
we will be wearing it for much longer than if we wore it whenever cases rise. So I think that um, if you want to stop wearing it in five years, now is the time to put on a mask um, when cases do you, do you, do you really Do you really think this might go on for five years or you're just saying I that? I think that it's going, no, I, I said it's going to be flaring up and down and uh, for many months. And um, you may have periods where non you don't need to mask and then periods where you need to mask. And so we just need to follow those trends and wear masks. So um I think I, th I think the the um, my theory is the reason people sometimes aside from the politics because I do agree with you it was a little bit politicized is I feel the the pro mask uh, crowd they they talk about the mask as if they are parachutes and I think that's really where people get a little bit. Um, kind of rubbed off the wrong way like you know okay i'll wear the mask but just don't tell me it's a parachute it, you know it's it's like for me it's a low cost does it's not an invasive procedure i i've started wearing it when i go into grocery stores and costco and so on i i wasn't wearing it last month to be honest uh, uh, uh about a month ago but i started doing it but you know i have no like i have no knowledge how effective it's going to be since i'm vaccinated and a lot of people around me at costco are also vaccinated yeah i thought so I'll, to myself, you, I'll wear it what the heck i'll tell you what if you are with a group of trusted vaccinated people we don't mask um you know what they have been doing uh and you think they've been careful they're not going to bars and hanging out without masks and then they come meet you i think it's safe for you to be unmasked around them when you go out to a grocery store um many people are vaccinated but some are not and um i am wearing a mask not just for my protection when i go to the grocery store i think that now that i'm vaccinated and i'm immunocompetent if i got covid from going to the grocery store i am not going to have serious consequences and i probably don't need the mask to protect me but i wear the mask to protect other people because i could have acquired covid and what we have learned is even if you're vaccinated, you have very high levels of COVID virus, even when you're asymptomatic and post-vaccinated. So I am doing it to protect other people, to keep from shedding virus and infecting others. Um, so let's talk then about vaccine mandates and mask mandates. I'm not a, I'm, I, you're not in the government, I'm not in the government, so we really can't dictate that, but we could have our opinions. And again, another polarizing opinion, right? I mean, there are some hospitals in the Chicago area where if you're not vaccinated by a given time, you could be terminated. And, and some of these went into courts of law and uh, the court sided with the hospital system. They said, yeah, well, they, you know, they, they can dictate that. And, and, you know, there's the, it's my freedom, my body, all of the other movement and so on. So, so A, What's your stand on vaccine mandates when it comes to uh, whether you call it passports, whatever it is, uh, and also on mask mandates? Um, what, what are your thoughts there? So I'm very conflicted about uh, vaccination mandates. I think that uh, people have a right to refuse vaccination. That isn't something that... Um, we should be mandating even for healthcare workers, any vaccine, not just, you know, the COVID vaccines. I think that 
it can be a condition of employment. So if you choose to come work in healthcare and you're applying for a job, the institution can say, we're not going to hire you. And we do that. We're not going to hire you if you don't have your measles, um, mom's rubella vaccine, because we, we state that clearly. Existing healthcare workers telling them they must get the influenza vaccine or the um, COVID vaccine, I have a problem with that, just mandating it. Um, mask mandates. Why, um, why, why do you have a problem with that? So again, there are um, side effects, as we know, uh, including fatal side effects. And at uh, an individual level, I think that you still should have the right to make that individual um, decision. Being a healthcare worker doesn't take that right away from you. Uh, and I think there are other things that can be done. It's the easiest thing is to mandate, right? I think that you can educate your healthcare workers. And when you uh, increase vaccination rates through education and you allow healthcare workers to make that choice for themselves and get up to rates of 95, 96%, I think that those healthcare workers are much more likely to be good vaccine advocates and advocate for vaccine for their patients too, um, versus you know the people who are forced to get it and are uncomfortable about getting it. I think they, they should be listened to if they truly have serious concerns about getting it. Um, so I think personally, I think the vaccine is very safe. I've received it. My entire family has been vaccinated, but I do respect the person who has very, very strong um, uh, feelings about not getting it because of some personal medical issues, you know, things that should just be discussed with their uh, physician versus your employer, um, you know. How about uh, mask mandates? Mask mandates, like you said, low risk. There's, I don't see any harm to anyone from masking, and I am strongly in favor of mask mandates. We've had a mask mandate in place at our my workplace for um, since March, um, and now, now you start you know you start having different colors for the masks to match your outfit, right? <laughs> Yes. So we, we can't, unfortunately, in healthcare, we have to wear medical masks. So, but yeah, I wish uh, when I'm out at other places, I do have different colored masks. So, so um, you, you know, I mean, I think the, the there's so much happening and, and um, I mean, the country has opened up and I don't think I don't think anybody is in favor of lockdown at this point. Uh, and, and I just want to say another thing about that. So you talked about not knowing where the masks worked, right? What did we do when we, uh, before we had vaccines, we, we masked and we controlled cases. So I think that by itself is also evidence that masks work. Well, it could be also the social distancing. We've done so many things at the same time. No, I agree with you. Like we've done so many things. It's one of those things where, We've socially distanced, we wore masks, we had lockdown of the country, there was no restaurants, like so many things we've done at the same time. I believe it's a combination of factors of what we've done that led to the drop in the cases. Uh, I don't know which one was better than, than another. And, and you know, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I always say I may not, like it's different if I had to, if it was so expensive to wear a mask and it was- Or came with risk to you. I really think wearing a mask is very, very low risk. 
Yeah, yeah, very low risk intervention. The, the other thing, Priya, is that when somebody gets, um, um, this came up, I have a couple of some friends who had the, who were vaccinated, fully vaccinated, but they also unfortunately did get COVID. It was mild. I mean, they weren't hospitalized, so as expected. So thanks to the vaccines. Um, and they isolated. Do they need to isolate until the test turns negative? Like they need to test once a week and they should, or, or the test could linger and they could be fine after a week if the symptoms resolve. Like how long do they stay isolated? They should stay isolated for if they're depending on whether they're immunocompetent or not, 10 to 20 days. So 10 days for immunocompetent, 20 days for immunosuppressed. Uh, I don't think that testing is um, useful. If you do a PCR test, we have, especially in the immunosuppressed patients, you can have detectable virus by PCR for many, many days. And that virus is in such low levels or is completely inactive that it's, does, it's not transmittable. So I think that retesting and waiting until you're negative is not necessary. If you were completely asymptomatic, you, you can just wait that time. If you're symptomatic, you want to wait until your symptoms have resolved and that, or improved and that time has passed. And, and the, the current test, like if I go to Walgreens and do um, the PCR, this detects the Delta and the Lambda or this won't? Yes, Just, uh, it does. So that's a really important question. Um, so all the current PCR tests that are FDA approved pick up the variants also. It doesn't tell you that it's the Delta variant or the Lambda variant, but the test is not falsely negative because the variants are not detected by the PCR. Well, that's very helpful. How about the rapid test? A lot of people do the rapid. Is it, does it have any value? Like, have you, I mean, I've done it one time, I believe. And I tell you why, because I was at a meeting and the meeting, interestingly, allowed only vaccinated folks. And despite that, we got a notification after the meeting that two people developed COVID-19 despite being vaccinated. So they recommended testing. And I did the rapid. Uh, and I don't know, maybe I should have done the PCR. <laughs> so the rapid test, there's a lot of different types of rapid tests. And one thing they all have in common is that they're less sensitive. So for asymptomatic person, uh, the rapid tests are not the best tests. Um, some of them are very inexpensive and they also can be done on saliva. Uh, and so what they make, the ease of use of the tests make up for some of their limitations. So we're talking about school testing, for instance, and you can use an antigen test to, to, to test, uh, provided you do it frequently. Um, for If you want to rule out that a person is infected, I think the PCR test is better. It, as I said, it's very sensitive, so overly sensitive and might might make you think you're still infected when you're not, but I think that's the more sensitive test and you very useful for if you're looking for infection. The rapid antigen test, if you're, if you're symptomatic, most of them are fairly good. And if you do two of them, that increases their sensitivity a little bit. Uh, but if for asymptomatic screening, the rapid tests are not so good. And for post-exposure testing, for instance, they may not be the best option. Yeah, so I did the wrong test, but good, I'm, I'm fine. I, I have no symptoms, I'm doing okay. Priya, we've covered so many things. First of all, I feel like I know way more. Um, I'm not too optimistic after the conversation. I feel like we're 
heading the wrong direction, unfortunately. But uh, for listeners, anything else you think we should have talked about? I think we've covered a wide range of things, but what else do you think I should um, we should have talked about? So one thing I want to emphasize is some people have been going again, going back to N95 masks and talking about, you know, with Delta, really the only way to protect ourselves is N95s. I just want to push back against that. Yes, there is a component of airborne transmission that you can get around with good ventilation. I don't think N95s are necessary. The the way the virus behaves hasn't changed. Um, It's more transmissible because there's much more virus in people's um, upper airways that then gets transmitted to others. That's a really key point um, that I wanted to emphasize. So do you think, I don't know, where do you think we're heading in a couple of months? I mean, winter is coming. People talk about winter and they're saying, well, the cases are rising in the summer, although I'm not really sure this virus has this like winter versus summer type of thing. But people are saying if the cases are rising in the summer, what's going to happen when the winter comes in? So it all depends on what we do. So if we go back to, you know, masking and being acting responsibly, I think we'll be okay because vaccination rates also with these current scares, vaccination rates are also going up uh, again after sort of having plateaued for a while. So it really depends on what we do if we, you know, are all behave responsibly when when we know of clusters in our communities, we take extra precautions. So I think about COVID prevention has sort of multiple layers. And so vaccination is one layer. It's not, you know, armor that completely protects you against infection. It reduces the risk that you'll die in battle, um, but it doesn't completely prevent injury. Um, And then I think of masks, social distancing, uh, staying home when you're um, sick, getting tested and notifying contacts if you're test positive, et cetera, all is extra levels of protection. And when cases are very high, we need all those extra layers to protect us. When cases are low, maybe we can go back to saying, I don't need all these protections just focus on vaccination. But depending on any one thing isn't going to get us through this. Oh boy. Okay. Well, I hope uh, to have you next time when maybe some, I don't know, something more uh, pleasant, but we are going to make it pleasant by taking our usual Twitter selfie right here. I don't know, Priya, I want, I'm, Thank you so much for... I should have worn my t-shirt, right? I told Vincent I want to wear my t-shirt. Yeah, yeah. You should put the t-shirt, the healthcare unfiltered. You could still do it, of course, and put it on Twitter. You know, that's uh, hashtag marketing. (laughs) He did it. He did it for me. No, I really appreciate it. I respect your opinion so much, and I really feel that you provide lots of factual things, despite the uncertainty. I think, you know... um, and you've elaborated on several areas where it's just not certain, but this is what we will do and, and see what happens. I'm still hopeful to uh, have you in a few months, and uh, it's going to be a little bit better and just uh, talk about lessons learned, I guess. I'd like to do like lessons learned episode, but... <laughs> I, we're not learning anything. That's the problem, right? That's the yeah. problem. So I don't know about you know Chicago area, but we are completely full for the last two weeks, we're at what's so called we, red we're on the, Yeah, we're on the way up, I can tell you. For but this is without a COVID surge. That's what's so scary. Um, you know, we are full before COVID has hit us. 
and no one is no one wants to do anything about reducing elective cases you know this is our time to make do, our do money think, um, do you think there's some this covid fatigue like i feel there's this covid fatigue right i mean there people, people may have just said you know what screw it whatever happens happens exactly and that's where we are in it's really demoralizing because we put in so many things. Are we off air? <laughs> no, not yet. <laughs> okay. We can be. Okay. Yeah. No, but you know, it's like... These are, has... these are important to be on the air. I think it's fine. Yeah, no, it, everyone has stretched a breaking point before COVID hits us and no one's had, you know, in healthcare, we've not had a break in a long time. And I just feel like we we do need to think about yeah. yeah you know slowing down and giving people a little bit of a breather because uh, cases are covid cases are going up uh in the community and the hospitalizations are going to follow in the next two weeks and if we're already so full um, well it's already here like in the chicago area i can tell you one of the hostels in the suburbs where i i used to be on staff they had three weeks ago, they had one patient on ECMO and they have 30 right now on ECMO. So I think you could totally tell there, there's a definite problem. I just don't know whether the public is ready to do anything more than what we're currently doing. I think I kind of feel if it's August 2021 and you're not vaccinated, unless there's a gun to your head, I don't think you I, like I don't feel you know, any more preaching for the vaccines is going to let people to vaccinate right now unless you force them. I don't know. You know, a lot of people have been saying, I'm going to wait and see. I'm going to wait and see. If COVID goes away, I don't need to take it. And now that COVID is back, more and more people are taking it. So I think there's hope. That's good. That's good. That's good. Well, Priya, it is Saturday and I don't want to steal your Saturday away, but I want to thank and you. And I have a very special visitor at my house. I wanted to show you my visitor, oh. but Vincent said no. Oh, well, um, no. My we son have to... has, has adopted a puppy and she's adorable and she's visiting. Do we not put her on the air? <laughs> I think we should. She's I think we should star. because this will be on YouTube. This could be like, you know, a famous because I have now my YouTube channel that we could put on. Yeah. Um, well, it's... send you a picture though. She's very cute, okay, and so well... I've been up since six, since four o'clock, I think today. <laughs> so I can't take the blame for having you uh, up for no. so long. No, that's why I say okay. In the morning I'll be doing a lot of stuff so I could get this done too. Thank you so much for always being generous with your time, and and thank you for coming on. Yep. Thank you. Bye bye. Okay, everyone, this was really uh, an amazing episode. I learned so much and I hope you did too. Uh, Priya has been so generous with her time. We taped this episode on a Saturday morning, August 14th, 2021. I'm very grateful for her generosity, for her time, and uh, for um, really being on the show. Truly, truly appreciated. Uh, I also hope you learned a little bit more about the SARS-CoV-2, about the COVID-19, about the variants, and hopefully what you learned is going to help you as you navigate what we are dealing with currently. The goal of the Healthcare Unfiltered is to provide an unbiased uh, and educational views that might help listeners and the people at large. And I hope I'm fulfilling my end of the bargain. 
So let me know how I'm doing. You can send me a direct message on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan. That's at C-H-A-D-I-N-A-B-H-A-N. You could also visit my website, shadinabhan.com, and send me a message right there or send me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. Don't forget to watch these episodes on my YouTube channel. Don't forget to subscribe and hit the like button. And of course, don't forget to visit all of the podcast outlets and subscribe to the show, refer a friend or a colleague and rate the show. If you have some time, write a brief review. I would be very grateful. I'd like to leave you with a saying. I actually don't know who said that, but it is important. It is about dialogue. Because sometimes I feel the art of dialogue has disappeared from the medical profession. I think people are so polarized in their opinions that they are unwilling to listen to opposing views. Always, my view is 100% correct and every other view is 0% correct. The concept of trade-offs has actually flown outside the window. I'm going to leave you with a saying about dialogue because I really believe in that saying and it's really important. In true dialogue, both sides are willing to change. In true dialogue, both sides are willing to change. Until next time.